Ladies and gentlemen, this 30-minute interview with Peter Grandich is one of the more informative blocks of time I've had in the last couple of months. I certainly hope that you learn from this and enjoy it as much as I did. We covered a lot of ground and uh, it was tons of fun. As always, beneath this video, there is a link where you can subscribe or beneath this podcast where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I publish every Sunday. I love doing it. I'd love to have you join the team of 30,000 other retail investors that hear from me once a week where I share my grand takeaways and action items from conversations just like this and plenty of others. I wanna thank Peter again for his time. He's a dear friend, a longstanding friend, and this interview was an absolute blast. Here's Peter Grandich, enjoy. Welcome back to the Jay Martin Show, and I'm joined once again by Peter Grandich. Peter, it's great to have you back on the show. Always a very special honor going back a long time with your father and you. So believe it or not, I enjoy it as much, if not more, than you will. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, there's a handful of directions we could go to kick this off. I thought an interesting one would be that I've noticed a massive increase in bullish sentiment in the gold sector. And the reason I say that is because from a macro standpoint, there's often bull market signals. There's often a reason to think there's a gold market just around the corner. What I'm seeing today is retail investor sentiment shift that direction in very large numbers. And I watched this through the registration numbers at my upcoming conference, Twitter sentiment, responses to our newsletter and and YouTube pieces, and you must be seeing this too. And so do you think that this turn in sentiment has a bit more substance than typical? And do you expect a bit of a rotation in the market? Well, I think as we speak, uh, you know, we're gonna see a CPI number and that'll have a short-term impact. You know, if there's a surprise weaker, I think it can move gold further. If there's unfortunately, surprise to the upside. It could be the reason to take uh, profits here. But I think one of the things that made it different this time is, is the fundamental of the central banks being such big buyers of gold. Now, I believe you and I talked in the past and they talked about the BRICs coming out eventually with their own currency. And someday, somewhere, there'll be gold backing some sort of currency because that's the only way we're ever going to get out of these debt crises that are around the world. But I think the fundamentals now are more supportive. And I think a real important thing, Jay, I don't know if people have discussed this with you yet, but it's certainly been my feeling is, as we shifted the physical trading away from London and New York, the Crimex, you call it the Comex, I've always called it the Crimex, and it's gone to the Far East, the abilities for the uh, bears, or what we like to call the raiders, uh, that, you know, that, 11 a.m. special East Coast time, just as London would shut, suddenly markets would fall or there'd be just these crazy paper offers. The change in the paper market versus the physical market is becoming more in line now. Uh, for a lot of years, people that sold bullion would say to themselves, I don't understand this. Gold's down $30 and everybody's ringing my phone wanting to buy gold. And uh, so I, th I think a change in the physical market uh, versus the paper market has been beneficial. But the number one factor is the large purchase of gold. 
There's they're not speculating or looking to trade it. There's a reason they've acquired it. It may be just one or two, maybe just China, whatever, but it was a bull enough reason. And I think the other important thing is last year was a tough year, but it really finished unchanged. And it was kind of like a boxer that was knocked all around the ring. And suddenly it's the 11th round and they're still swinging. And I think that's how gold got through the year and really now has strength enough, both technically and fundamentally, to make new highs. Now, when you look at those central bank numbers and you see the rate of acquisition surpass anything we've seen in decades, and these are central banks also repatriating the physical gold. So they're taking physical metal off the market in record numbers. What impact would you expect that to have on the paper market in terms of ripple effects down the road? Well, we, I think we've seen it already, Jay. The raids that used to you know, go would fall $20 or $30 one day, and it would stay down for weeks, if not months. Now, at best, it's hours or a few days. So I think one of the things is the strong fundamental demand has changed the way the bears, and people call it cartels, whatever that is out there, if it's organized or not. We do know one thing. Many years ago at the conferences, there used to be a person or two that would tell us crazy people that said there was any manipulation. But the criminal charges and guilty pleads clearly proved that there was. And I think that also has stymied a lot of people that might have otherwise uh, played the negative side. So I, I, again, I think things that used to be a bother or hold back the market had dissipated or disappeared. Now, Rick Rule's thesis on gold manipulation is that traders will manipulate anything in a free market if it's advantageous for them. And for the last decade, it's been advantageous to manipulate the market to the downside. He expects over this next decade, it'll be advantageous to manipulate gold to the upside. And his thoughts on gold manipulation are that simple. Do you think he's missing some important threads? No, it would be very hard to say Rick Rule misses anything. You know, <laughs> right. uh, to me, I remember starting, we started, he started a little few years before me. He's come a very long way. He's a very, very intelligent man. So I would, I would listen to him. I think he, you know, I would pay heed to what he has to say. Uh, I think the thing that, that the, the unknown question yet is, is it going to expand? In other words, are we going to get past that group like, there's a group of people who are going to be at your conference and they're, I, the old terminology was hard asset. And I don't know if it's that case, but whatever the 21st century call it is now is. But the broader market or the average financial market still in the US, I can't speak for Canada, Jay, but in the US, the financial service industry still treats gold as kryptonite. Well, mm -hmm. don't touch that thing. That, that's like going to kill stocks or bonds. You know, we make our living stocks and bonds. So, uh, to in order to get to this, and I don't mean nominal new high, because to get to a new high, you have to take into account inflation since the last high, but a real new high, we're going to need to see an expanding participation outside of the group that normally is involved in it. And I, you know, and, and that will coincide with a stock market now that is not viewed by the investing public as a one-way street. Jay, not only did the public, but the average advisor, and this was the thing when we talked a year or so ago about why I was so bearish, they hadn't been in the business that long. They were used to this one-way 
give me the Kool-Aid from the Fed and you make money. Now I think they're going to be open to other avenues and one of those will be gold. So that that's mm. that's another positive that I think gold has going for it. Well, you're right. A couple of things I want to I want to pull on there. Number one, you mentioned gold's been viewed as kryptonite from most institutions. And that's very much a Western economy. You're right, you know, all the way up to individuals like Warren Buffett referring to referring to gold as a pet rock. Um, you know, another Rick Rule quote, I believe it's Rick. Uh, gold is like uh, gold to central bankers is like sunshine to vampires. <laughs> but uh, it's not an Eastern economies. You don't see that individuals are encouraged to buy gold, to hold gold jewelry, to save in gold. Um, we don't see that in the West. We definitely see it in the East. Um, and I'm curious about that, just philosophically, if you've got any thoughts to share on that. And then I want to jump to your broad equities comment there. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and listen, uh, the wealth, you know, China, uh, there's a battle on both both militarily and economically, I, I, I see. Uh, and I, I can't call which way it's going to go, but I think we're moving to more of a confrontational than, a, than, than an easing of a friendship type of thing. But people do, culture-wise, look at gold. And I think gold you have to take into the bigger picture now. I think minerals in general, you're young enough and the show's gonna be going well for a lot of years. Minerals in general now are the next big thing because if we're gonna have all these things, every day there's a talk about more electrical costs. Today they talked in America about, we're gonna stop having gas stoves because it's bad for the, the climate. And so everything's electricity. And I always like to joke is, well, you better change the infrastructure that carries electricity because part of it, it was put up by Thomas Edison. I mean, we know there's, there's already shortages and blackouts. Uh, how are we gonna provide all these things? But all these things that are gonna need electricity, the cars and, and, and other uh, consumer gadgets and all, they need these minerals. And these minerals, aren't readily available. And there hasn't been a lot of years where a lot of money has been spent. And one other thing, which probably be discussed at your conference is, years ago, Jay, you could spin a globe, put your finger on it, say, yeah, we can go mining there. Now where you mine or you want to explore could be big problems. Look what's happened in South America. Look what happened in Panama with a, uh, deciding to charge almost 20% royalty on a, on a project we've spent $10 billion building. I think if I'm a major in all, I'm gonna think twice where I'm gonna go. And I think that's gonna move back to North America becoming more of an attraction again for the exploration and development of minerals. I'm with you. And where does that leave so many, in your opinion, of the rare earths that China has a stranglehold on? Um, because, you know, there's, the deposits that you need aren't always in the locations you wish they were. And America's rich with a lot of precious and base metals and energy. But when it comes to a lot of the obscure rare earth metals, they're very concentrated and often in the case of cobalt, for example, in high conflict zones. Now, do you see an avenue where America can create some, some sort of a competitive advantage in that arena? Or do you have any thoughts on the future supply and demand economics of those minerals that right now are largely controlled either within China or within the control of Chinese companies in locations like the Congo? 
Well, I think that's the missing link when everybody talks about all these wonderful ways things are going to expand is what you brought out. They don't bring up that subject. Or, hey, there's certain minerals we're going to need that we have no real access to. And, and if we do, it's from places that aren't exactly friendly. Mm. And anything we want to try to do in the U.S. or North America to start looking on our own is going to take years. And so uh, the other thing also, Jay, is America is not loved in the manner that it was loved 20 or 30 years ago around the world. I, I don't think it's fair to say there is many allies, true allies to the United States as there were. And so that's one of the reasons why I think China uh, recognizes that it, it has a lot of influence in the world and is building up its military strength so it can really you know, play, play, play par with the United States. The United States is kind of declining in that regard in, in mineral resource. They're only first waking up. Same thing with uranium. I mean, yeah. look, look, look at how many nuclear plants and it is, there's no doubt that nuclear has to be part of the energy solving for the next 20 years, whether you like it or not. And 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you would hear a politician in the U.S. go, over oh, my dead body, will we build a nuclear plant in my state? Now they're calling up the guys asking if you can come and build one because, you know, the energy need is so. So that's a big change too. Yeah, you're right about the minerals, and that's a that's a big issue that doesn't get discussed. The rare minerals. Now, do you follow the demographic challenges in China at all? I'm I'm really curious because it's kind of like an outlier in the conversation that I often hear about the future of China's economy. You don't look at the fact that there's more 60 year olds than 50 year olds, more 50 year olds than 40 year olds. 40 than 30, 30 than 20. And we know, allegedly, they've historically manipulated their population data to the tune of about an additional 100 million births in the last 20 years that didn't occur. Um, but when you have such a top-heavy economy entering, especially if we enter some kind of a globally coordinated recession, you have the most populated country on the planet getting old before they got rich. And that's a very severe challenge in terms of keeping your people healthy and fed. Um, and Russia's not dissimilar, to be honest, from a demographic standpoint. They're, they're aging remarkably fast and becoming top heavy from an age standpoint. Do you look at those demographic numbers, Peter? Do they, do they strike you as interesting and consequential or what are your thoughts? Well, I think it's a very good point to tell you the truth. I wasn't as aware or acute of it as you just pointed it out to be, uh, but the demographics in other places, especially here in the U.S., are voting serious problems. We just had something I didn't think I'd see in my lifetime, Jay. It used to be said among politicians that if you talk about Social Security, you might as well put your foot on the third rail. It was called the third rail because no one wanted to risk the the, the backlog of people getting so angry that you're going to do something with Social Security, but now it's a real issue. So Democrats in general, not only in China, but in the Western world, I think in Japan, it's something like within 20 years for every retiree, there's going to be one person working for every retiree. <laughs> That's going to be a tough way to support the retirees. There's a whole retirement crisis. We can talk maybe another day about it and all that's occurring around the world, especially here in the United States. Um, are you interested in elaborating on that, the retirement crisis? Yeah, well, I see it. You know, that's the part of the business that I've still been involved in. The biggest fear among people now is outliving their their money. Yeah, right. Know, about a yes. third of America, 
about a third of Americans have no savings. Another third have limited savings, which are not expected to get to levels that can support a lifestyle that they may be accustomed to. And you, you have health costs rising, you're, you're living longer. And so the, the, the biggest fear or the, the emails I get when I do a, a radio show in the US and mention that is from people about, I, I don't know how I, I, either I can't retire or the other problem also, Jay, is that a lot of the don't worry, be happy crowd did planning on numbers that really aren't realistic now. They used the performance of how the market did, you know, for the last 10 years going into last year. And they exaggerate that out and assume people say, well, listen, if this does this, you can reach what you need to get. So if the stock market just doesn't go up, let alone go down, uh, the retirement issue where here in the US, and again, I don't know in Canada how it is, but most retirement plans are heavily uh, invested through the stock market. Yeah, that's those are really interesting numbers. And you're right, that's you define the crisis well, especially when you point to a third um, with zero savings, a third population with limited savings, not enough to sustain the lifestyle they're accustomed to. Um, and you immediately think, okay, so how did this occur? And whether it's people gravitating towards a debt-based lifestyle, because we live in a debt-based economy, and you can only maintain that as long as your income can service that debt. And once the income stops, you're left holding the bag, uh, which is problematic. Um, salary stagnation, possibly. Um, you know, I mean, the U.S. had some demographic challenges themselves with the baby boomers, this massive population that were suddenly competing for the same amount of jobs. And that was further compromised. So we opened it up, the labor up to the global labor market. And all of a sudden, American baby boomers that used to work in the industrial areas are now competing with Chinese workers and Mexican workers. And so, of course, salary stagnation had to play a role. How do you, I mean, I guess I don't have to ask, like, how do you get out of that? I, you know, I'm not sure if you asked, that's the right question, but what do you, what are your follow-up thoughts on that? I'm very curious. Well, Jay, one of the things that impacted that is our parents and grandparents, when they worked, they basically worked at a company and got a pension. Then we moved away from pensions to take the burden off companies and gave people 401ks. Yeah. And uh, uh, some people took advantage of them, you know, and, and match it. But a lot of people lived for today. They didn't live for tomorrow. And now tomorrow is here or it's, it's within reach. Mm. And, and that's that's where the hardest thing to face. And the normal thing that is gonna happen is they're gonna look to the government to somehow subsidize or support that if there's enough people. And so the government's gonna be caught up in trying to provide, uh, we have difficulties here in the state of New Jersey with uh, low income housing, there's not enough. In the wealthy area, they want, people to come and cut their lawn and work in their house, but they got to travel like 60 miles uh, to get there and, and, and their housing issue. So there, there is a, the demographic issue uh, is acute, especially in a country like the US where the debt level now is getting to the point where even servicing the interest is gonna be a challenge. Mm -hmm. We're gonna push $33 trillion and that doesn't count unfunded liability stuff. That's hard debt. And if interest rates just return to a normal of 5% and stay there for a lot of years, 
Well, that's like 1.6 trillion in, in interest expense. You only take in about 3.6, I think they took in before the pandemic in revenue. So we see a, we'll see a lot of money going just to pay interest. It's not sustainable, Jay. In your lifetime, you're going to see the payment of that debt crisis. I don't know how it's going to be the hyperinflation, super deflation, uh, gold back currencies. But I think if you're if you're under 50, you're going to see uh, the, the payment for kicking the can down the road. Uh, the can is going to not be kicked anymore. It's going to be opened up and it's going to be ugly. And uh, the people that are still living at that point in time, it's going to be their challenge to deal with it. It will be. And there's maybe like three avenues out of that right? Um, yes, some sort of debt restructure, essentially a default on that number, something big changes in that scenario. Uh, economic growth could save you if suddenly, right, we enter some kind of a massive economic boom, balance sheet looks favorable. Um, third would be that it's inflated away through some kind of terrifyingly high inflation number. Would those be the three paths that may, I mean, I guess we're going to go down one of those paths, aren't we? Absolutely. And the second one was actually tried by Trump. People forget before the pandemic, and he has the pandemic as an excuse, but he did a lot of tax cutting on the basis that it would cause GDP to rise much more and in a sense take in more taxes. And then the pandemic came and that just added to, to the debt load. Yes. But one of those things, you know, uh, has to happen. It, it can't be sustainable like this too much longer. And one of the issues, you know, is going to be is, and, and that's why I think the long predicted the end of the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency, I don't know how many years people predicted that, but we are seeing the dollar being used less and less in the world as a reserve currency. And if and when, even if it's on a limited basis, some of the BRIC nations decide to create a currency backed by commodities or gold or a combination, yeah. that will then open Pandora's box for others to look to that. And without the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency, then the United States crisis is 10 times worse. They get away with a lot of stuff because they're a reserve currency. Do you think that is the motivation for China filling their vaults with gold that they can then say, we have a gold-backed currency and you need the gold to make that argument sound if you want to go to Saudi Arabia and do a deal in uh, Chinese currency for oil. The Saudis may, might say, uh, you know, why should we have confidence in your currency? And China can say, well, look, we've actually spent the last 14 years stockpiling gold reserves. That's what should give you the confidence. Yeah, and, and they have spoken about it openly. Uh, about a year or so ago, there was a big BRIC meeting and they, they talked about it, about they are eyeing, uh, literally eyeing a gold-backed, commodity-backed currency. So I think it's only a question of when, not if. And like I said, then I think Pandora's box opens because other mm. people are going to, you know, and, and and it goes back to what we started the interview about is what was moving gold? Why did these central banks decide to become, or at least one or two of them, major buyers? And it's obviously, it's going to be used in some sort of monetary base, not just to look good in the vault or you know, for, for, yeah. for anything, you know, for consumer use. Yeah, the Pandora's box argument resonates a ton. I mean, the first door is always the hardest one to kick down. And once that door has been kicked down, you know, it's a bit of a slippery slope, isn't it? I, there's endless 
examples of that scenario. So, okay, first of all, can I play devil's advocate on one thing that we've discussed? Because this is the most common pushback I get to my generation's going to have to solve the debt burden. And I am told, look, we've had this, this conversation's been had before after the Second World War. The world was laden in debt, and the expectation was that the upcoming generation was going to have to carry that burden, but in fact, their quality of life massively improved instead. And what do you see today, other than more debt, because that's significant, maybe that's it, uh, that's different? And why would this, this um, scenario unfold differently? So there's three debts that I think people need to think about. The hard debt that we know, the near 33 trillion, the unfunded, and I'm just speaking for the United States, uh, the unfunded liabilities of Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security payments, which people say could be another 70 trillion. And then the thing that I think will be the domino is the derivative market. And people have numbers that are just unbelievable about, it's like 33 people are along this line, like a domino that are part of this derivative and sold and held and used as collateral, et cetera, et cetera. And if one goes wrong, it's like the dominoes when you see them go down. I think that's the difference than when you say back the World War and you know back then we had at least a gold back in the currency. Uh, now it's the full faith and credit. That's all the United States has. And I don't think, like I said, is I don't think the United States is viewed in the manner that it was 20 or 30 years ago. I don't think people are going to have the faith that it, that it can uh, do what it has to do. So I, those are the differences. And that's what I think your generation will face. Th those three things, one or all three of them, will come together to a point where it's unfortunately a, a, a tough sled. Okay, so another common pushback that I get, especially when I'm talking to buddies of mine, you know, generalist investors, they maybe run, you know, small company somewhere, they put their money to work in the market, but they're not market, they're not full-time investors, that's for sure. And when we discuss the possibility that the market just goes sideways for the next 15, 20 years, it's an impossible concept for most people to wrap their mind around because of the last 40 years. And that's a long time. So therefore, if you've been in the market for the last 10 years, last 20 years, I mean, then the rational thought about what might happen over the next five or 10 is that the same thing will occur, which occurred over the last 10, 20 years, the last 30, 40 years. And it's very challenging for generalist investors to wrap their mind around the fact that the game can change. And it has changed in the past. If not recently, it's changed in the past. And that could be a big issue because we're talking about this aging demographic and the retirement crisis, a large percentage of which are probably saying, well, the equity market can fix this. The equity market might come and save me here, right? And if it doesn't, that problem amplifies. What do you think? Well, I entered the business in the dinosaur age of the early 1980s. And things were so bad for so many years, the Dow had only traded between 700 and 1,000 for decades, Jake. That Business Week ran a famous front page that equities are dead and bearishness was around, just all around. And this young man out of Gainesville, Georgia, named Robert Prechter Jr., came out with a prediction of the Dow 3700. Now, the Dow had never been over really a thousand. And people said, What are you crazy? You know, well, it went that way sometime. 
I think we've come to that opposite end. The pendulum swung. We, we got everything we can out of it. And there's just going to be a period of time when, when normal retracement of things take place. It's just, uh, you can't, one of the things to remember that moved this market for these lot of years is a monetary policy and an ability to create dollars that I don't think they have the same opportunity to do so. Uh, that's why the Fed is, even in the last minutes that came out, basically had a paragraph in there saying, you guys on Wall Street are fooling yourselves if you think we're taking our feet off and putting our foot back on the gas pedal anytime soon. But Wall Street is built on a don't worry, be happy attitude. That's the crowd that I've always seen there. And uh, if you don't mind, I used to say this at your show, I say, you can throw one of those guys off the top of the Empire State Building, Jay, and all the way down, they say the same thing. Hey, so far, so good, you know, until you hit the ground. And that's right. kind of where we're at. You know, we hit the ground and, mm. uh, you know, there's a price to pay for it. But it's not bad news. I mean, a rotation in the market is just a different game to play, right? And it's going to be a market of stocks versus a stock market for a lot of years. The market in general moved a lot of stuff. Now it's going to be individual performance in certain sectors. Got it. You know, you hit on it. Rare minerals, uh, the commodity boom that's going to come. Uh, that's one of the reasons what copper is running now and all. And again, going back to what I said earlier, we're just not going to be able to readily get it the way we used to. The costs are going to be higher and the dangers of spending money to get it are going to be a lot higher. And uh, that's why I think even if there isn't boom in economies, certain commodities, which have been in a sense semi-neglected for a lot of years. And one other point, Jay, if I may, the majors at this point in time, after a severe junior re resource market, and I'm well aware of it because I suffered in it, uh, they have tremendous free cash flow now. They used to be debt laden when markets bottomed. So I think you're going to see a lot of M&A, some out of necessity, but you're going to see a lot more M&A and small to mid-sized producers merging and a lot of activity down to the junior sector because a lot of things just got overdone to the downside. And uh, so, uh, you know, I think this year will surprise people in the, in, in the metals industry of how much M&A there's going to be. Interesting. Okay. That's actually something we're going to be talking a lot about at my conference at the end of this month is expectation for consolidation and um, your expectations high. Okay. Okay. And that's based on the fact of the health of the balance sheets of the producing mining companies and their ability to take advantage of the depressed prices of the exploration and development companies. Correct? Correct. And, and a lot of the small producers, one of the difficulty now is to get institutional interest. You know, years ago, you could be, uh, be at one of your shows and there were 300 gold brokers and, and they loved gold. And when they went back to their offices, they talked about such and such company. Well, now it's much more difficult for these small to mid-size, any size company, but especially in the mining to get followed and get interest. You know, if you're not in the handful of exchange traded funds or mutual funds that uh, follow the metals market. So merging and becoming a significant bigger producer is going to be viewed as a win-win. 
I mm. see that in, in a lot of areas. Right now, I'm looking in Quebec, I think is going to be an area where we're going to see a lot of projects merging all. And the majors outside of a couple of them that aren't in such great shape, like I Am Gold, they're in really, really great shape. And they, 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 they've had their paper out now and they've had their targets. And now I think with the metals lifting up, they got to be saying, hey, I think it's time for us to act. So that's why I'm, I'm positive on that. Within, so let's stick with that. Let's stick with American gold for a sec. Um, are there specific jurisdictions within the U.S. that you favor, Peter? Oh, yeah, you know, if, uh, I'm not, not going to be in the mining business at this point in time. But if I was going to be in the mining business, I would steer clear from California and love to go to Arizona, Nevada. There's just, mm. and there are a few other states that are clearly mining friendly. But there's also a couple of states that, you're just not going to be able to to to, to go with things. So, and, and listen, the same is for Canada. Listen, there's some provinces that are really open to mining, and there's some that still, you know, are very concerned environmental and issues and all. And but I think still in North America, you're not going to worry about getting your property seized, suddenly being asked to pay a 20% royalty, strikes all the time. These are the things that have happened in South America and elsewhere now that the majors who at one time, those were the big places they went to look for metals, now have to have second thoughts, at least in my opinion. You, you know, just because you mentioned Canada, yeah, I mean, it's a country that has historically leveraged our natural resource wealth incredibly effectively. If you look at how Canada came through the 2008 financial crisis. Now we had very different leadership. Prime Minister Harper was, he's an Albertan, you know, an oil, an oil boy. Uh, so to speak, but he leveraged Canada's resource economy and like incredibly effective. We actually came out of the 2008 crisis as the strongest G8 nation as a consequence. Um, you can choose to leverage your resources or squander them. Th that happens. Thankfully, you know, we tend to pendulum in terms of leadership, right? Especially in Canada, the US, everybody, you know, we, we tend to see Democratic leaders and Republican leaders up in Canada. Um, uh, liberal then conservative sort of back and forth back and forth and it's no secret to my audience I'm no fan of our current federal leadership and his inability to provide uh, sound business cases for any of the resources that Canada has access to um, our biggest export these days seems to be pronouns which is bananas but I'm optimistic about the future because this can only last so long um, and uh, if there's a delay in I think Canada's economic recovery. It's just a delay. That's how I feel about it. Um, I tend not to get, to get too bogged down in the, the current disaster of federal leadership that we have in this country because I think about, well, this is temporary. And eventually, as it's always, as it always has, you know, this too will shift and change. What do you think about that perspective? I'm just curious. I mean, Canada's making headlines worldwide over the last 18 months. That never happens, right? This is kind of unique uh, time to be Canadian and watch international media respond to federal policy in this country? Well, I think that's important. I, I can tell you this here in the U.S. Uh, for two years, the Democrats controlled all uh, matters of Congress and still had a splinter group uh, of far left and weren't able to achieve a lot of things uh, that they set out to be. And then the night before our current election, the pundits told us the Republicans are going to win by a landslide and things are going to change and we're going to see all sorts of 
good things happen. And it took him 20 votes just to get the guy in to be the speaker. And I, I don't know what he gave away, but he gave away a lot. And there's a splinter group there now. So I don't see here in the U.S., I don't follow Canadian politics, Jay, but I don't see in the U.S. anything good coming out of D.C. I, I just, I see another two years of, you know, investigations and claims and accusations. And before you know it, they're running for the next congressional seat plus the presidential. And uh, so I, I don't see how uh, the U.S. is going to move forward. The, the toughest thing I can say is, if you talk to small business, and I presume it's probably the same situation in Canada, Jay, small business owners are the backbone of the U.S. economy, as much as we hear about the majors. Yeah. Most small business owners will tell you if they've been in business 20 years or longer, it's been extremely hard to be a small. There's, there's been not, there hasn't been good fiscal and common sense policy on a federal level. In some states, it's done well. Florida has been a big supporter of small business. And that's why they prospered and got through, I think, the COVID crisis better. But here in the United States as a whole, I think we're going to spend another two years of just watching accusations and counter charges and all going back. And, and things are only getting worse as it happens. So, uh, you know, you might have given me the idea of short the dollar and go long the Canadian dollar because you're in a better position. Uh, you know, I can remember the day, Jay, when it was a dollar seven when you actually... Uh, at that point. And so there's no reason if what you said is true to see the Canadian dollar because the US dollar just went too far and it needs to correct anyway. So, but I, I don't follow your politics enough to comment, Jay, on Canada. Yeah. Well, in any, any scenario where we have a, a coordinated effort by our leaders to get back to good business, as I would define it, I got my blind spots, you know, we're five to seven years away from that. I would say, I mean, we've recently had uh, a couple world leaders arrive in Canada to sit down with our prime minister, one obviously being the chancellor of Germany. Uh, this was in November, begging for a natural gas deal to help Germany get through the winter. Natural gas, a resource that we have tons of, 1.3 trillion cubic feet. Uh, but our prime minister claimed you couldn't make a sound business case to export the resource that we have to the country that needs it. Um, instead, he promised hydrogen power, which we don't have any of. Um, or So it's curious to me. <laughs> Anyhow, I think that'll change. I think it's going to take time, and I'm excited to watch it. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic for Canada's future. It's just, you know, we got to get through some challenges in the meantime. Um, Peter, any closing thoughts? I've learned a lot, by the way, over the last 30 minutes. I really want to thank you for coming on the show and just like spending time with me. Let me pick your brain. It's incredibly valuable um, as I try to navigate these markets to steal the perspective uh, of yours <laughs> and for my audience. But any other closing thoughts you want to leave us with? The attitude, which is hard for people to take, and uh, you know, is less is more. Uh, that's been the theme of our planning group for a lot of years. A lot of people didn't want to hear it when everything was going great because the neighbors were you know, killing it in the market and they were buying these cryptocurrencies and all this other stuff. But I think that the attitude now is less is more. We're going to have to try to be more efficient, even though it's more difficult and effective. And that, you know, we're not going to try to turn our Chevy into a Rolls Royce, meaning our stocks are not going to go from Chevy prices to Rolls Royces. But certain stock selection uh, still is going to be critical. And there's just no way you can have all the things that the 
governments around the world are talking about and, and are putting big money up for and not expect there to be a commodity boom because commodities are needed to build those things, lithium, copper, cobalt, as you mentioned, so forth and so on. So I think irregardless of whether there's a booming world economy or not, the commodity market has clearly seen its lows and probably has several years, maybe not skyrocketing, but certainly uh, you know, better pricing and companies able to make money in that business. I think that's very sage advice that less is more. And uh, I'm seeing that run through my community, through our family. Um, we're enjoying simplifying various aspects of our lives, whether that means for us, for example, getting out of the city and moving to a small town. That's a change we made a couple of years ago. I was having coffee with this young guy uh, who's made an obscene, obscene amount of money uh, at, at a young age. And um, used to like really nice things. He was always very flashy, dressed in you know five thousand dollars suits, all of this stuff. And we went for a walk, and I just he seemed different to me. And a comment he made, he said, "Jay, I used to want the Ferragamo shoes. Now I want the shoes that are the most waterproof." <laughs> and he doesn't have less money than he used to, but his psychology around how it should be spent is changing. And it just struck me as a funny comment that he made when you said um, a shift towards less of more is probably the right way to think about things. I appreciate that. Mm. Okay. Well, have a great show. Wish I was there. Always enjoyed them. And uh, I'm sure it's going to be a great success because the market is right. The timing's right. And I, I think, you, I think as always, there'll be a lot to learn for people there. I saw some of the people you had, some of the people that I still went around with, but a lot of the younger people that I've seen on Twitter now, uh, some brilliant minds. And also, I, I really wish you nothing but the best, Jay. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.